0: So, you've been practicing for quite a while now on this retreat, all of you. Some of you one week, some two, some three, some of you one month, two months, longer. It's quite a process, quite a journey to undertake, to embark upon. And it seems in the practice of the Dharma there is a a remarkable range of possibilities of what can unfold for us, a remarkable range of teachings and practices we can explore. Ultimately, all of this that is offered and that we engage in Dharma teachings, Dharma practice, is in the service of Truly understanding the nature of our existence, the nature of life, and understanding the way that life comes to be as it is. Understanding the mechanisms, the processes, the dynamics, of which there are many, and some of which we've spoken about others of which I'm sure you've encountered in many different ways. And today what I'd like to speak about and reflect upon the significance of is one of the most challenging and profound teachings that the Buddha offered. The teaching of dependent origination, Paticca samuppada. The understanding of which is very much at the foundation of the Buddha Dharma and distinguishes it, we could say, equally together with the Four Noble Truths, but in some ways even more specifically, this is what makes the Buddha Dharma what it is, we could understand it in this way. And this is because it provides a framework for understanding the nature of experience in which we are neither required or, in fact, able to solidify or negate the truth of experience or the very fact of experience as arising. And most philosophical and spiritual traditions Tend to go one way or the other, either making ultimate truth or the nature of reality or what we call ourself into something, or suggesting, purporting to, to describe that nature of life, the universe, ourself, ultimate reality as nothing. The teaching of dependent origination shows us that all things arise according to causes and conditions and equally pass away according to causes and conditions. And in this very simple statement, which in some ways is, a, is an experience Expression or an expansion, a development of the the statement which the Buddha records in his own awakening, and which is pretty much used as a a marker in the texts traditionally for the awakening of a practitioner. The awakening is almost always described with the the person, the woman, the man, coming to the recognition. It's talked about like the eye of the dharma opens in them. There's something beautiful about it. The the eye of the dharma opens. And what is seen in that opening of the eye is that all that arises passes away. Now this is both pointing to the truth of anicca, of change, of impermanence, transitoriness, which we use as a regular reflection and as a tool in practice as a way of looking and seeing because it's true of course that all things which arise pass away and yet the implications of it go so deep they are so far reaching that really our minds struggle to grasp what that actually means if we if we really allow that truth to shine its light on all experience. And the teaching of dependent origination specifically describes the process whereby we become entangled with the world and whereby freedom is found within this world rather than by somehow escaping the world or negating it. And those two possibilities or inclinations are sometimes, well, I don't know if traditionally it's described this way, but could be understood as the near enemies of liberation. The things that look kind of like it, but are not. In fact, freedom. It's an interesting concept, near enemy. The idea of something that looks like something really wholesome, but is not that. And so with loving kindness, we talk about the near enemy as Sort of a sort of very uh, attached wanting, and it looks like we really love somebody, but actually we want them because they serve us in some sort of self centered way. And the near enemy, we could say, of liberation is the negation of existence or the escape from it, the attempt or the appearance of that. So, I'd like to reflect on this teaching and then on some of its implications and in doing so I'm quite aware that the context or the the frame of a a Dharma talk is really but a little amount of time for this and yet uh, for some of you this will be a familiar topic perhaps and others maybe not. But... uh, the Buddha spoke of dependent origination Paticca Samuppada which is the Pali as that which he had understood that basically brought about or was the foundation of his liberation and what, how, how it is expressed or most usually expressed is a Process that begins with blindness, avidya, not seeing. Sometimes translated as ignorance. Well, I think ignorance is a little pejorative for most of us, the way we use that word. You know, ignorance is stupid. Whereas blindness is actually more useful. It's like, oh, we don't see. We don't see. And this lack of seeing, this blindness, avidya, leads to a unfoldment of behaviour and experience that we can also call suffering. Blindness and suffering are inextricably linked. And therefore it becomes also clear to see how seeing, insight, understanding and liberation are equally clearly linked. Understanding how blindness leads to suffering is the foundation for releasing the heart and mind from that suffering. And so the process describes how causes from the past lead to effects in the present. I'll, I'll go over this quite a few times in different ways. It might sound a little bit theoretical to begin with. How causes in the past lead to effects in the present. So how things are now is a result of how things were or certain things that took place. And in the present, certain responses to how things are lead, uh, or the present effects, the fact that things are in a certain way, lead to certain causes for the future. And these causes play themselves out. In terms of specifics, what that is or how that's described is that there are the past causes of ignorance or blindness, of not seeing, not understanding the way things are, and formations, the karmic activity that takes place as a result of that blindness. And essentially that blindness is based around our identification with a sense of solid, separate self-existence. Or, alternately, for some more spiritually, or apparently spiritually sophisticated Views The sense of negating self can sometimes equally give rise to karmic formations that lead to suffering. So far as we take a position in which we either locate or negate reality or existence or ourself, we tend to be enacting a distortion of the truth. And in enacting that distortion, we become entangled. So blindness leading to formations or activity, we could say, karma, intentional action. And in this context, generally we talk about actions born of greed, hatred, delusion. Greed and hatred, more obvious what that's about and the harmfulness of it. Delusion is simply, again, another expression for blindness. But blindness that is formed a view or taken a position about how things are and assumes it knows. Blindness in itself isn't dangerous, harmful or, leading to, or something that leads to suffering. It's when we take a view based on that blindness and then start to act from it that we cause and that we experience suffering. And that the effect of that past blindness and the actions born of it is described in terms of present effects. Because there's blindness, there are formations, karma formations. Karma formations from the past give rise to the consciousness of this moment. The fact that we are conscious right now is because of what has taken place in the moment before. That gives rise to this, and in fact many moments before. With that comes the faculty with consciousness of what's described or named in the Pali is Namarupa, translated in different ways. But most usefully, I think, name and form, or mentality, materiality. So it's like that sense of the mental world and the physical world. They arise in relationship to consciousness being there. And with those arising comes the, what we could say, the interface between those two worlds, which are described as the sense basis, so that's the eyes, ears, nose, mouth, tongue, body, and the the mind that is a sense base with regard to thought that experiences thought in the same way as eyes experience uh, visual images, or the body experiences tactile experience. And so there's this basically this interface, the sense of mentality, materiality, or name and form. As you can see form is kind of the world name is the 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 name we give to the world if we could say in simple in simple language and then the sense spaces are the in a way the interface between the two and this arises i mean also what this is describing is this is what happens when you get a body isn't it it's conscious there's the sense of inner and outer and there's these senses you know eyes ears nose tongue taste and what happens is as a result of having this consciousness in a body is contact. And this is the last of the effects, the effects of those previous activities that give rise essentially to birth. This is what happens when we're born. We've got consciousness, there's a sense of inner and outer, there's these sensory doorways, and then there's contact between what appears to be or is understood as inner and outer. We hear sounds, they come, it seems, in sights, Smells, taste, touch, thoughts. And this is our world. And with that comes the feeling quality that we've spoken about of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And each and every one of those contacts that takes place through the eye, ear, nose, mouth, tongue, body, or the mind. In the sense of the, um, the mind that receives, or that aspect of mental activity that cognizes thought. Every one of these is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Inevitably, always, and it's a it's a catch-all formula because they're either pleasant or unpleasant, or they're neither, and therefore everything has to fall into that. You talk about either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. I think uh, we sp- maybe I think it was Catherine spoke about this at the beginning of the retreat. And so those, that's basically what it is to be born, we could say. That's the effect of past activity. We take birth, and we can think of this and this whole framework on a moment-to-moment level, but equally on a, a lifetime-to-lifetime or a one-body-to-the-next kind of um, framework whereby birth takes place, and it comes with this experience. Now, those are the present effects. That's what happens. It's inevitable. You have a body. This goes on. A mind and a body. This happens. And then in the present, where this is what's happening, consciousness, name and form, or mentality, materiality, the sense bases, sense contact and feeling tones are taking place, are being experienced. Present causes are craving. We know and we've spoken of and we've explored, and it's a really key element of Dharma practice, is looking at how this momentum or this movement of craving arises and that sense of I want, must have, cannot do without or I do not like, cannot stand, cannot live with and all the different ways that in its either in terms of grasping or aversion it's still craving, it's still that basic urge and movement to configure experience according to our preference and it's incredibly powerful. for all that we you know, hear in the simple, well, not simple, but in the very particular formulation of the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering and there is a cause of suffering. And that is it, craving. That's the key to unlocking the puzzle. And it arises in relationship to those feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Out of craving, grasping, wanting, or not wanting, comes clinging, a sense of attaching, holding on, where we lock on to something. And this we can recognize in our experience as those places we encounter where we've become rigid, we've become tight, we've solidified. And there's a sense of, and we know it, it's, it can be felt physically by a tightening and a contracting of the body, but the mind also, it tightens around and we can notice its activity expressed in I must have, I must have. How will I get? How will I keep? What happens if I lose? Da 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 da. Going on. Or I don't want, I don't like. What will happen if that comes back again? That clinging on, where we lock onto, where we don't just notice, oh that's pleasant, I'd like some more, and then we're on to the next moment. Or that's unpleasant, wow. You know, that's that's hard to bear, and then we're on to the next moment. It's like, in that sense, craving can just arise. But unconscious, when we're not present, when we're not conscious, we identify with it, we hold on to it. And that clinging takes place. That grasping takes place. And with that becoming, bhava. Like it's essentially the process whereby we identify with and create a sense of self, of identity out of the position that we're taking that says not just this is unpleasant and difficult to bear or that's rather lovely and some more of it will be nice but I must have or must not have and I am someone who wants or has or I am someone who does not want or doesn't have or it's the sense of identity that arises with the experience when it's not examined when we're not conscious in it, we inevitably take that position. That it's not just a flow of experience unfolding as described, but that we are located within it, and in fact located by it in a particular form, in a particular way, in a particular identity or definition of ourself. And those are described as the present causes, each one giving rise to the next. And they give rise to future effects. What happens in the present as a result of what was caused by the past, it's not caused directly by the past, all that uh, craving, clinging, becoming, isn't caused by the past. It happens in the present as a result of the fact that we've got a body and mind caused by the past, so to speak. And then this craving, clinging, grasping, becoming gives rise to, in the future, rebirth. Coming back into existence. Whether the rebirth into a new body in an in a ongoing round of sort of classical samsaric migration from one body or one realm to the next. Or just the rebirth into the new moment, into this moment with the sense of me that turns up here. Have you noticed how it does that? You know, we can be completely gone, spaced out, don't have a clue who we are, where we are. And then, bang, we're back. And it's not just, oh, here we are. It's like there's a sense of self that reappears in that, a sense of solidity, of identity that reappears, rearises. arises it seems. And with that, rebirth leads to old age, sickness and death. And that is basically... If you're born into another body, you're going to go through this whole journey again. And so far as we're reborn in a sense of identity, of I am, however we define it as I am this, I am not that, I am over here, or I'm not over there, whatever, any sense of I am will be subject to the, to the very painful process of deconstruction. Just as the body, through... Aging, sickness and death breaks down and deconstructs. So, too, any identity that we establish or hold ultimately comes apart. And in that coming apart, there is suffering. So the Buddha says, after working through this, this analysis, and so arises this whole mass of suffering. It's the kind of phrase he uses. It. It's like, Phew, you know. So I just want to check at this point, particularly for those of you who maybe haven't heard this um, this particular teaching in this form before, does that follow and make some degree of sense? Does it? Yeah, you can kind of follow what's being said there. You don't have to remember every little piece. I mean, it's really like ignorance. Because there is ignorance or blindness, therefore there is karmic activity and formations. Because there are karmic activities, therefore in the next moment consciousness or next birth, consciousness arrives. And because consciousness arises, therefore name and form, nama rupa, and like that. And so, each, so because there is feeling, craving arises. Because there is craving, clinging arises. Because there is clinging, becoming. Becoming leads to rebirth, old age, sickness and death. And each kind of conditioning the next phase Now, it's really good and important and useful to have a sense of what this is about. To just get that. Particularly the key link between the present and the future. That in the experience of feeling, tone, of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, vedana, the unconscious, compulsive and habitual response is to grasp. In the form of craving for the pleasant, aversion to the unpleasant, or disinterest and disconnection from the neither pleasant or unpleasant, the neutral. That is the place where we put a lot of attention in dharma practice, because that is the place where we can unhook, where we can actually start to dissolve the power of the cycle that goes round and round. It's talked about as a wheel of samsara that just goes round and round like a hamster, on a wheel in a cage just running running, running running running, but getting absolutely nowhere apart from exhausted and stressed. Now I don't know if hamsters get exhausted and stressed but human being human beings certainly seem to. And if we can be with, if we can be aware of, so we spend a lot of time <coughs> practicing being aware and conscious and awake because we need to be conscious at that point of contact where feeling arises because at that contact between the eye, And the visual sign. We might see something, oh, that's a beautiful flower. Oh, I'd really like to have that in my room. I'm sure if I meditated on that, then, you know, things would go well. Or, who's left that heap of dirty old clothes in the hallway and, you know, making a puddle? And it's like, at that point of contact, if we're conscious, we can say, oh, craving, wanting, or aversion. Or we might just... uh, We become oblivious to an experience that is neutral and we're not interested in it. And so much of our experience is of the texture of neutrality, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that we mostly pay, pay little attention to it. And in Dharma practice we make the effort to pay attention to all those neutral, random, boring things going on, like the sensation in my big toe after I put it on the floor. Not because it's exciting or interesting necessarily, but because we're cutting through the habit of the mind that is the basic mechanism of creating suffering. And so if craving doesn't happen, then clinging doesn't happen. If clinging clinging doesn't happen, then we don't become in that moment something. And in not becoming, there is no future effect. We are unbound, in fact. We step out of the momentum of samsara, which is really to step out of the dimension of time to be free in this context, is to, or in this understanding, is to see that it is not we moving through this journey. There is a journey taking place. There is a movement going place. But we are neither identified with a location in it, nor somehow are we apart from it. We're not doing this, it's not happening to us, but nor is it somehow happening apart from us or in a way that's not related to that which we are. And the Buddha once asked Ananda if he understood dependent origination. And Ananda said, Yes, yes, Lord, I I do understand it. I've penetrated this and uh, the Buddha responded to him, he said do not say that Ananda this dependent origination is profound it is deep, it is beyond the grasp of the ordinary mind and so and hears that and it's like hmm, ok, so I understand this, yes great, important And yet not to just stop with that sense of, oh, I think I understand this. Whether we see it in terms of the past moment, giving rise to present moment effects, which, if we're not conscious and awake, will lead to present moment activity, i.e. craving, giving rise to future effects. Or whether we see it in terms of this whole life of blindness and hopefully some mindfulness giving rise to a future life. And the cycle playing out in those terms. Whichever way we see that, there's something remarkable and mysterious here. Not to be captured or dissected by an intellectual analysis of factors such as those I've just described. Yes, that's part of it. But that's not the whole teaching. Dependent origination is profound. The Buddha once said. When, when asked, in fact, maybe combining a couple of things he spoke about in these terms, when, when asked as to who or what is the, the Buddha, the Tathagata, he would speak of himself as the Tathagata, the one who has thus come, which is a very clear communication of what he meant, the one who has thus come. It's like, hmm, what does that mean? And he would you know, say, do you see the Tathagata as being in these five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, volition, consciousness, which I think I spoke about, I think I mentioned them earlier. The, the basic um, aggregates or heaps of, um, how do I say that, heaps of whatever it is that makes us up probably the best way to put it, you can't say it's something Um, but there's form, body, there's feelings that's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, there's our um, responses to it which is in terms of formations or volitional activity sorry, there's perceptions before that then formations, perceptions being how we interpret them recognise them and then how we respond to them, formations and then consciousness the the, the faculty that knows and recognises all of this that the target is not to be found in these aggregates, these five heaps. Nor is the Tathagata to be found outside of them. And he kind of didn't just say it, but he usually asks, makes the other person sort of tell him what he's expecting to hear. So he says, do you see the Tathagata in them? No. Good. Do you see him outside them? No. Good. And then again, you've got this situation where he's saying something quite simple and appears logical. target is not these formations, he's not in them, he's not outside of them, he hasn't disappeared in a puff of Buddhist logic. What's he pointing to? In another place he says he who sees dependent origination sees the Buddha. He who sees the Buddha sees dependent origination. So from the point of view of wisdom, if we're to see the Buddha, it's not some guy who apparently had nice complexion and some interesting bodily features. If we're to see the Buddha, we're being told that this means seeing dependent origination, seeing the process of life, of existence, coming into shape, into form, and dissolving out of it which is what dependent origination describes. So this teaching is, as I said, at the core of the Buddha's transmission. And it's mostly described as I've just described it. That's the classical way we hear it taught. But in fact, there's more to it than that. It's often talked about as the 12 links of dependent origination. Those are... 12 factors I described and how they're linked together in a kind of cyclic, circular process. But in fact, the Buddha also talks about how the fact of, of suffering, which is old age, sickness and death, is translated as this whole mass of suffering coming into being, <coughs> that this gives rise to faith. When we hear the Four Noble Truths, when we hear that there is suffering, that there is a cause to suffering, that there is an end to suffering and a way There too, a way to the end of suffering, a path. When we hear that and we see the truth of suffering, it actually gives rise to faith because we're, oh, yeah, that actually makes sense. We start to have some trust in the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And that faith and the sense of, strange it is, but probably, I know it was like this for myself and probably for many of you, how there's (coughs) something. Excuse me. There's something almost counterintuitively gladdening about the first time we hear the teaching of suffering. You know, when someone actually said to us, there is suffering. You know, and this is at the core of a lot of our experience. And, And that sense of, yeah, oh yeah. Like something true has been acknowledged in a way that so much of the time in the world, it seems people are busy trying not to admit that there is this. Even if there's things that are horrible, painful, difficult and wrong or bad, depending how we relate to them, at some level there's an immense relief in the heart where we just hear and can take in, there is suffering. It's like, that's how it is. It's not because you messed up, or you're wrong, or it doesn't actually mean anything about you, which is where a lot of the gladness and relief comes from. It's actually the way things are. Ah oh. <sighs> There's a gladdening of the heart. That comes with that teaching with that understanding despite the fact that it appears to be bad news it's really good news because we're there's something real and true and that's always gladdening of the heart when we touch what is true and so there's the faith the gladness and out of gladness comes a sense of of pleasure rapture sense of the just aliveness of the body, as the Buddha speaks of. That gladness, out of gladness comes rapture. From rapture comes tranquility. It's like we start to become peaceful. When we start to feel more glad and more, in a way, comfortable in ourselves, there's a natural pleasure to just inhabiting our body in a relaxed condition. And that leads to a tranquility. It's aha, like, oh, we don't... This sort of the waves tend to die down. Tranquility is different than equanimity. Tranquility is a state of calmness. It's like a cooling of things. And in that cooling, there's a happiness. Tranquility leads to happiness, the Buddha says. Happiness, a sense of just uh, contentment and you could say even appreciation for things as they are. Happiness, with happiness, concentration arises. An important point. Concentration does not arise from making oneself miserable by trying too hard, despite the fact that that's often how we try and go about doing it. Concentration, collectedness, samatha, it arises from, from happiness based on contentment, tranquility. And through concentration, through the steadying, focusing, clarifying and refining of the mind's capacity to see, to penetrate, concentration, through concentration, arises knowledge and vision of the way things are. Insight. we start to see the way things are. And this is part of the process of dependent origination. We see the way things are. And in seeing the way things are, we start to become disenchanted with them. We see that they're constantly changing, and they're not subject, or not able to give us lasting satisfaction. They don't ultimately define us in any fixed or enduring way. And so there's a disenchantment. And it's a really useful word, disenchantment. It's like we're sort of in a magic spell, believing that these things that we've been chasing all our lives are going to bring us happiness. And as we see the way things are, there's a natural dropping away of that. It's a disenchantment. It's not like we have to hate them or think they're bad or get rid of them. It's just like, oh, they, those things, all that does not in and of itself have the capacity to give us lasting satisfaction. Or to meet that deepest yearning or movement in our heart for for truth, for freedom, for liberation. And so with that disenchantment, there's a dispassion. And again, dispassion isn't about to my mind it's not like getting disconnected from. It's like passion in that sense of getting entangled and equally suffering. Passion is the, the word passion comes from suffering, in fact, in the Latin rather than what we tend to think of as sort of sort of an excited desiring more aroused desiring that dispassion it's like that sense of cooling out it's just like whew, yeah there's like a fire of something that burns on the inside that's painful that that actually starts to to fade to go away and in the fading away of that there is freedom there's liberation dispassion leads to freedom as the Buddha pointed out. And with that freedom, with that liberation, there's a knowing of that freedom. There's not just the freedom, but there's the knowing. There's the conscious knowing of that freedom, of the release of the heart and mind. And this, we could say, is the transcendent dimension of dependent origination. We're not just leading from ignorance or blindness that takes us into birth and grasping and suffering, which is perhaps the shortest version you could give of it, to say there's blindness giving rise to birth. In birth there is this, because there's still blindness, there's grasping, and grasping leads to suffering and rebirth. It's not just that, but seeing that gives rise to faith, to happiness, to concentration, to penetrative insight to release. And so dependent origination is not a teaching that's saying we're stuck in any way in the cycle but that we can liberate ourselves. We can liberate the heart, the mind. And at one level we can see that the ignorance or the blindness that's being pointed to is that Ignorance of the law of karma. Just not understanding that actions based on particular intentions lead to results flavoured by those intentions. When the intentions are unwholesome, it leads to painful results. When wholesome, it leads to wholesome results. Not understanding that. Not understanding the Four Noble Truths. Suffering and its cause. The end of suffering and the path to that. Not understanding dependent origination. All this is the the foundation, or this is what ignorance entangles us in. And this is what the teaching of dependent origination points out. At another level we can see, and we could perhaps say a deeper level or a more immediate moment-to-moment level, we see that the identity with any experience, the tendency to identify with any experience leads to a solidification and we could say a creative, a generative process in which suffering is the result. In which we take birth in the sense of self or the sense of other that inevitably arises with it. And in that taking birth there is a separation, there is a A loss of contact with. A loss of contact with. And what could we put into that space at the end of that sentence? Because we can't put something into that space and yet there's something in us that responds to it if it's left unfold. One way we could talk about it would be loss of contact with a sense of inner radiance. A sense of light and a sense of life as something that is light that is experienced lightly that isn't heavy that doesn't weigh upon us and that that using the image or the metaphor of radiance there's a sense of luminosity of something that reveals whereby clear seeing takes place it's the effect of radiance of luminosity And there's also a quality of warmth to it. There's a certain heart or warmth expressed in that sense of radiance. For me, it evokes that. And the loss of contact with that warmth, that sense of a. whatever that is, there's a desolation when we lose that in our hearts that can run right to the very core of what moves and drives us to seek, to explore, to practice, to awaken. So, the teaching of dependent origination, Pāticca Samapada, points out to us that all things are conditioned and interdependent. That no circumstance or condition exists in and of or by itself. Like no condition that we might call me or you or any part of this or that or anything else exists in and of and by itself. Our mind operates by discriminating and distinguishing things into this and that and something else. Me and you and them and us and those and all of that. So at some level the the basic tendency of the mind is at odds with this teaching of the intellectual mind. The conceiving mind is at odds with this teaching. Because it's for functional and sometimes useful reasons, organising information in a particular way. But the teaching of dependent origination says to us we cannot extract any particularity from the totality. If we do so, we are engaging in delusional activity. And so... I find it useful, I find it interesting to reflect on this. Okay, so that's interesting, that's useful. We can kind of get that to a certain degree, more or less, depending on our sort of experience and familiarity with this teaching and with the way practice can unfold. We can have a sense of what that means. And it's useful to take that in turn, or I find to reflect on it. So what does that mean about our experience and how we relate to it? We can see the key issue with regard to craving and grasping and, you know, simple terms, don't go there, or at least see if we can let that go because that's the base and place in which we unhook from the entanglement of that cycle. You can also see the very key place in which seeing suffering and trusting in the truth of that turns us from following a cycle of continually recreating suffering into the development of heart and mind, the cultivation of, uh, of tranquility, concentration, insight that leads to freedom. You see those key places where we can engage here. We're not somehow helpless. But in terms of how we understand or relate to what, what does that say about this existence? Who or what I am or am not or all of that, which seems to be right at the heart of it all. And isn't necessarily resolved by saying, oh, I'm a dependently originating phenomena. It <laughs> doesn't do it for me. Or I'm a non-phenomena that dependently originates. It mm, doesn't do it either. And if we look at the core of what it means to have a sense of self or identity, I think there's two key elements. There are other ways we could talk about it, but I'd like to talk about two key elements that we might question here based on this. When we see that ourself, or what we call ourself, or any particular experience is dependent on all sorts of other conditions, we realise that if any one of those conditions hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here. And of course, the classic and obvious condition is that our parents met, and they exchanged a little bit of biological material, without which we couldn't be born. Now, maybe they didn't even meet physically, because... Biological material can get exchanged without that these days. But in some way there was a meeting, energetically, and there's this exchange, and out of that, this creation. And if it hadn't happened, we wouldn't exist. Imagine that if we didn't exist. A friend, Leela, who I teach with, uh, she's Swedish, has a five-year-old boy who she was recounting recently when we were teaching together in October how he would sometimes ask... So where was I when you were my age? Do you think good question? But it's like didn't exist and maybe wouldn't have, apart from certain conditions. If we really get that, if we really get that, that what it means is that nothing here is required, absolutely. There is no particular individual or conditional circumstance on which the world depends. Because it could equally have gone a different way. And it just wouldn't have happened this way. It could equally have been the Gaia house was bought by the um, people who wanted to make an old people's home out of it. When we were trying to buy it 12 years ago. We were successful. We didn't offer the most. They might have got it. We wouldn't be sitting here right now. This retreat wouldn't have happened like this. You might have done your retreat crammed up at the attic at the old place where you get 12 people up a ladder through a trapdoor into a very confined space and you thought your room was uh, a bit small. So many conditions. We are not, therefore, at the centre of the world. That's what that means. Anything that we feel like it must be so or it must not be so is untrue as a view or perception. There is no reason why this must be so. And there's no reason why something else must not be. There are just conditions. And we are not at the center of the world. That sense or perception or delusion is so much of what creates the suffering around the sense of self. It locates us at the center somehow. And we struggle and resist being relocated or delocated from that position. It's like at some level, from the point of view of self, it's all about me it's all about me and anyone to suggest otherwise is not going to be received very enthusiastically just as when uh, copernicus and then following from him galileo suggested that in fact the earth was not at the center of the cosmos and that the planets or the stars were not revolving around us but that in fact we were spinning around ourselves just another one of many things spinning around He was threatened, and I can't remember if he was actually put to death. I think he recanted, and then uh, so they didn't actually kill him, and then on his deathbed said, of course you stupid fools, It's as I described earlier. But the idea that it would be so threatening to a culture that they'd be told that in fact this world is not the centre of the universe, that they would execute a man for saying so. I think it points to how strongly we hold that sense of how important we are, how central we are to things. One of the great things about being on retreat is that, you know, the world has to get on without you. And remarkably, it does. Have you noticed? You know, right now, in a way, you've stepped out of the world and it's getting on without you quite fine. One day, we will step out completely and in a way in which we don't just walk back in at the end of our retreat. And the world will get on fine without us. It's not to say there won't be sadness or tears at that passing. But part of what dependent origination points to us and says is, well, you could try doing that right now. Living your life as if the world wasn't turning around you or depending upon you. That isn't to say becoming irresponsible or callous as a result, but just somehow seeing that there's an incredible lightness of heart that comes when we realize that, yeah, we give what we give, we do what we can. But in the end... If it was all to stop, things would just keep unfolding one thing after the next. This is one of the things we can understand from this teaching of dependent origination. We are not indispensable. And actually there's a great joy in that. There's a great lightness. And it's unearned joy, in fact. It's something independent of the conditions. It's not something we have to prove ourselves for or earn by being good, good meditators or good people or whatever. It's actually just, ah. Just that. And what also comes with understanding this teaching is as we see that all of these, like, like sure, no one thing is ultimately required to be in the way that it is. And anything could have turned out differently according to conditions. As well as that, we see that each particularity is a unique expression of a matrix of conditions that will never be repeated. That it is unique. And that the whole universe, throughout its entire existence, has been involved in this arising in this way. And by that, I'm not talking about this. It's equally talking about you. Or the feeling, or the thought, or the sensation, or the beautiful motivation, or the nasty piece of reactivity. Whatever it is that's arising in this moment, the whole universe, the whole of existence has been involved in this. Because everything is related to everything else. Everything is affecting everything else. And there's something when we see and hear that, that there's something, it's, it's like, wow, how amazing. And how precious that everything we encounter should be affected by, touched by, formed and configured by all other things. There's something that that speaks to of the innate preciousness and value of existence. The teaching of dependent origination is not negating the value of things or beings. But in fact, opening a doorway whereby we can understand that because everything depends on everything else, everything is remarkably precious, of immense value, of indescribable beauty. But we don't see that when we think in terms of separate, cut-off, distinct, and un- or non-related or not interrelated phenomena, experience or beings. Everything depends on everything else, and as a result, this practice of awakening, of opening our hearts, of freeing our minds of of really we could say, in a sense, more and more deeply releasing the natural radiance of life, the natural and awakened luminosity of life by. By resolving the blindness, the, the non-seeing that obscures it. That something precious is offered and received, is revealed and expressed in this. I'd like to read a poem to this effect. I'm aware there's one or two of you have an interview at this time. So we'll be running just a fraction late probably. And uh, that's okay with me being one of the teachers and I trust it will be okay with Catherine being the other. If that's not okay with you and you feel you need to leave, I'll be probably just another five minutes, which means we'll be about three minutes late for those interviews. But one aspect of this is seeing the transitory nature of things, we see how precious they are. Beautiful things come into existence and disappear again and again and again and uh, this is something that the very preciousness of things is connected with their transitoriness. just as a, a sunset is beautiful and lovely because it's constantly changing and dissolving if it were to stay there for half an hour unchanging, we'd get bored we wouldn't be so interested in it And likewise a human life there's a There's a um, small, I guess, memorial um, at the monastery Chithurst of Vavica that I like to visit in, in Sussex, which has just a single name and a date and a poem. The poem reads, The cherry blossoms cover the hillsides for but a few days. Any longer... And we would not treasure them so. Underneath it, it's a a haiku. Underneath it is a name, it says Little Sam and a date. And clearly it's a, a life that was just for one day. And the sense of the preciousness of it is not negated by how short it was, but amplified. Something of that sense of seeing the transitoriness and the dissolving nature of existence also shows its preciousness, its beauty, in a way that's unavoidable. And so the poem I'd like to finish with is by Mary Oliver. It's entitled The Buddha's Last Instruction, and it speaks to these two aspects that I've been reflecting on of uh, non-importance, non-centrality, and preciousness and beauty the true value of our being, our existence. And it's, it moves in the different stanzas between referring to the time of the Buddha's death and her present moment experience of a morning. And i just say that so that you can kind of follow how it tracks. It's a bit harder when you hear it than if you've read it a few times. The Buddha's last instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees, and he might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs disattached in the blue air I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life and then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha, before he died. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha, before he died. In the line where she says, Clearly, I'm not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. This is what the teaching of dependent origination points to: of how we might be in this world, how we might recognize what is most true of that which we call ourself, or this existence. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.